Go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1 after I've given you a moment to turn there. Let's do it. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or, or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that it speaks to our hearts, not just our minds today. That we wouldn't just hear with our ears, but that our souls would be given life from your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so our practice to kind of typically when we preach, you know, there are lots of different ways to preach. You probably understand that already. Um, different approaches to, to how preaching is going to happen. What we typically do, and, and sometimes we break from this for a particular reason, what we typically do is pick a book of the Bible and try to go through it methodically, uh, trying to understand what each passage means. And to do that, we use what's called the historical grammatical method, which means that we want to understand what these words meant when they were written by the author in the context and to the audience that they were written to and how the Holy Spirit might want to apply that to us today. And so we, we, we get into think, uh, a little bit of the history of what was going on in this passage. And we, we want to understand why, why, did the, why did John, the writer of this particular book, include this story? We're already told, because we skipped ahead to the end in the beginning of this sermon series, 
we're told that he chose certain things that Jesus did in order that we might be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing that he is the Son of God, we might have eternal life. So we know that John chose this story. He said there's lots of things that Jesus did. We can't possibly write them all down, but a few of them have been written down so that you might believe. And so it is with this story. John wants us to know about this guy named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at a specific time and place and had this very unique conversation with him. So what do we know about Nicodemus? We don't know a lot, but we don't know nothing either. We know a few things that are important to note. One, we see this immediately in chapter one. He was a man from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a particular religious group. They were a Jewish religious group at the time who took the law of the Old Testament very seriously. They were the Old Testament, which would have been the top of that. And so they had God's word, and then they had these traditions of men that they laid on top of God's word, and that was their rule of faith. Much like some uh, sects of Christianity today, who not only believe that the word of God is authoritative, but that the teaching of certain people of God is authoritative as well. We, of course, as evangelical Protestants, believe that the word of God alone has the authority over the church and over Christians' lives. And so there, there's, there's this group called the Pharisees, and they're, they're very popular among the people because the people live under this oppressive Roman rule at the time, and the Pharisees were known for, for resisting the Pharisees and kind of going against or I'm sorry, resisting the Romans and kind of going against the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they were well-loved by the people, and they often interact with Jesus in the Gospels. But in this particular case, this Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus seemingly alone. And he comes to him at night. Now, much has been made of the fact that he comes to him at night. It's not clear that there was... A lot behind that, other than perhaps that was when he had opportunity and expected that he could have some extended time of conversation with Jesus, perhaps. I don't know. We can only, only speculate. But Nicodemus, as we see in verse 1, is a ruler of the Jews. And we find this confirmed in other parts of the gospel that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest legal, legislative, and judicial body among the Jews. It was sort of like their Supreme Court, that this was the court that had final authority in matters involving the Jewish people at the time. And so the Sanhedrin would meet to decide on important things. One such important thing that they would uh, eventually meet to decide on is what to do with Jesus at his trial. It was the Sanhedrin that actually pushes forward the idea of Jesus being crucified. Now, they didn't have the authority alone to do that because they're under the rule of the Roman Empire. But they push forward this idea of having Jesus crucified. There are three times in John's gospel that we meet Nicodemus. The next time that we're going to, this time, obviously, the next time we're going to meet him is in John chapter 7. When the Pharisees are talking about Jesus, this is before his arrest and his trial, uh, but they're talking about Jesus and what to do with him, and Nicodemus actually stands up for Jesus. 
He goes against his fellow Pharisees, and he voices a very unpopular opinion among them. And he, and he actually stands up for Jesus, and he defends Jesus, and he gets sternly rebuked for the, by the Pharisees. They claim that he doesn't understand the scriptures. How ironic. The final time that we meet Nicodemus is what I think had to have been one of the most impactful events a human being could ever have. Nicodemus shows up at the end of John's gospel along with a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus at this time has been crucified and he's dead. And we know he's dead. The, the Romans actually came and they checked on him and made sure he was dead. And even though they thought he was dead, they went ahead and pierced his side again to make sure he was dead. Nicodemus and this man named Joseph come and they ask for Jesus' body so that they can prepare it for burial and they place him in the tomb that a couple of days later he'll resurrect out of. Now, in passing, I don't know what you think of that story, but if you stop and think about the emotional impact of actually handling Jesus' body after his crucifixion. When you think about the fact that that we know from Scripture that Jesus was badly mutilated through his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. That's the Nicodemus that we meet in John chapter 3, the one who would later prepare Jesus' body for burial, the one who would play this significant role in God's plan of redemption for all human beings. But before all of that, he comes to Jesus here in John chapter 3. What does Jesus say to this very religious man? A couple of things that I want to highlight from this conversation. Four of them exactly, and they're each on your handout. The first one is this. So this religious man comes to Jesus. What does Jesus have to say to him? The first thing he says is you can't get to heaven by being religious. Only by being born again. Let me say it again. You can't get to heaven by being religious, only by being born again. This is the first thing that Jesus says to this very religious man. Let's look at it together. Verse 1, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Now, if we just pause right there, at first glance, I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm like, is this guy, what, is he being sarcastic? Is he serious? Is he genuine? You know, we, so, sometimes we don't always know when we're reading the scriptures the tone of the things that are being said. It's, it's kind of the other things that happen in Nicodemus's life, the things that we see in John's gospel that lead me to believe this is a sincere sincere conversation that he's seeking to have. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Who's the we? The Pharisees? The Pharisees don't believe that he has come from God. They believe that he has come from Satan, and they want to stop him. But apparently, there is at least a segment of the group of the Jews already at this time, mind you, this is very early in Jesus' ministry, who believe that Jesus is a teacher who has come from God. And they believe based on the signs that he is doing. Signs is a very important theme in John's gospel. 
there are a series of signs that he presents as evidence for who Jesus is. And so Nicodemus, one of the first people in John's gospel to say, hey, we believe these signs. We see what you're doing. We believe a question. He simply, he, Jesus tests what he believes about Jesus and his ministry at the time. Jesus takes things up a really big notch from there. Verse 3, Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, Jesus, you seem, you seem to be from God. You're doing some really great things. And Jesus immediately says, hey, you're not going to be a part of the kingdom. If you just keep doing what you've been doing, if you just keep living life the way you've been living, mind you, this guy is a committed religious Jew. Like his his life revolved around trying to do what the Bible told him to do. Now, my, granted, he's a little bit confused in how he's going about that, as were all of the Pharisees and those who followed him. But he's giving a pretty solid effort at being a, a religious person according to the Bible that he's been given. And Jesus drops this really big bomb on him. Unless someone is born again, Nicodemus is like, I'm going to see the kingdom of God. Now, let's talk, we'll talk about the kingdom of God in a minute. Nicodemus is thinking, I'm going to see the kingdom of God because I've been living as a good Jew. I've been doing all of these religious things. I not only keep the Old Testament, but I keep the teachings of those who have interpreted the Old Testament. I'm like religious on top of religious. Jesus says, that won't get it done not going to be enough. He says you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God doesn't just mean heaven, but certainly, I think, because I, I, I struggled with how to say this. Do I say you can't get to heaven? Do I say you can't see the kingdom of God? If I were to say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God without being born again, I think that raises more questions than it answers. And so I, I tried to simplify things a bit and just say you can't get to heaven. It's typically the way we think of things as being saved or not being saved. And if I'm saved, I'll be in heaven. If I'm not saved, I won't be in heaven. And so Jesus is essentially saying you're not going to get there by being religious. That's a very difficult thing to hear. People all over the world throughout all history have been approaching God by being religious. Who have been approaching God by trying to adhere to a certain set of laws and principles and rules or some sort of moral code. And Jesus is dropping this bomb on Nicodemus and he's saying, that's not enough. It's not enough. Nicodemus asks ask, ask the, the logical question. You know, we use this, most of us, maybe for some of us this is new language, but a lot of us, the idea of being born again is it's part of our language. It's something that we're, we're relatively familiar with. But to Nicodemus, this isn't language that he would have used and so he asks the, an obvious question. How can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I imagine his mother hopes not. 
Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit. Okay, so he alleviates the tension about, he alleviates the mom's concerns here. We're not talking about being born again in that way. We're talking about being born of water and the spirit. And then Jesus doesn't even explain what that means immediately. He speaks in sort of veiled language. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first birth, the natural birth, the one involving the mother and the child. But whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. That's the second birth. That's the need to be born again. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. Thanks for clearing things up a little. And don't expect to know what's going on. I don't know. There's, he uses some very difficult language here, but the point is clear. You must be born again. If you don't hear anything else today, if you don't hear anything else that I say in the next 90 minutes or so that I get to speak, just kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> Hear this. You must be born again. You were born once, and unfortunately, you were born into sin. You were born once, and unfortunately, you were born into a state of being that is contrary to the things of God. You, in other words, you were born a sinner. You were born bad. You were born broken. I know that's a hard pill to swallow for most of us. But it's the reality that if you do nothing after being born the first time to change your trajectory, your trajectory will not take you into the kingdom of heaven. must be born again. Unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Our, our world, our culture, our society has come up with all kinds of ways that we become good enough to enter into heaven. Jesus says there's only one. Be born again. So what does it mean to be born again? That's something we desperately need to understand. And hopefully by the time we're done, I will have made that clear enough for you to take the next steps if necessary. But let's just not miss this. Without being born again, there is no entrance into heaven. You can't get to heaven by being religious this is the message, this is a consistent message all throughout the New Testament. We see this again, the Apostle Paul, who wrote several of the books of the New Testament, who himself was a Pharisee, just like Nicodemus. And he was a really good Pharisee. He was, he was a religious Pharisee. He did the Pharisee thing really well. He did the religious thing better than most. And after he met Jesus, and he himself was born again, what did he say about all of his religious adherence and behavior? Well, I'll tell you. He tells us. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he said, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. He's about to list his religious resume, okay? Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I, I did the religious thing. I did it better than anybody that's going to read this letter. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. Yep, you heard it, dung. So that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. What Paul is saying in no uncertain terms as he says, I had, like, I have my religious stuff that I did. I did it really well. And all of it amounted to nothing. Dung. Worthless. It didn't get me where I was. That was done, Paul says, as I have exchanged my own righteousness. That, was, that which was achieved by being very, very religious. I have exchanged my righteousness, which could never get me into the kingdom of heaven. I have exchanged it for the righteousness of Christ that is by faith. This is what we call justification by faith. That we cannot justify ourselves. That we cannot earn forgiveness of our sins. That we cannot earn God's favor. That we cannot earn our way or work our way into heaven. But that Jesus does all of that for us and says, now believe in me, have faith in me, trust in me, and you will be made righteous. This is the gospel message. This is what it means to be born again. Now, I don't want to get too far into that yet because we're going to come back to that. So the first thing that Jesus says to this religious man is that you can't get to heaven by being religious, only by being born again. And then, he, and then the next thing that he does is Jesus reveals heaven to those who live on the earth. This is the next thing on the handout. He reveals heaven to those who live on the earth. Here's, okay, so you need to know you must be born again. You need to know that, right? Here's another thing that you need to know is that we, from this perspective, having been born into this world as human beings living on the earth, cannot fully understand and comprehend existence from the perspective of heaven. I'm not saying we can't know enough and everything that we need to know, but it would be impossible for us to understand things that are going on outside of our realm and our world unless they are revealed to us by someone who has been there. I think we have lots of uh, context for understanding this. Uh, I've been a, a couple of places in the world that perhaps nobody in here has been, and you've been a couple of places in the world that no doubt I've not been. 
And if I were to begin telling you about a, a place that I've been that you haven't been, you would be gaining knowledge that you could not gain uh, other than either going there or having somebody who's been there tell you about it. This is exactly what we have taking place in John chapter 3, is we have one who has been in heaven, who has come to earth to tell us about it. There's a lot of things going on in the next couple of verses, but that's one of them. Let's look at them together. Verse 9, how can these things be, asked Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly I tell you. We speak about what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And there, of course, Jesus is speaking of himself. So what he's saying is, look, Look, Nicodemus, I'm trying to teach you about the, about the kingdom of heaven and how this thing works and where you've gone wrong. And Nicodemus says, I, don't, I can't even understand that. I don't, I don't have a way of comprehending what you're saying. And Jesus is like, I know that's the problem. You're up here teaching other Jews how to live and you don't even understand the basics of what you're talking about. And here's, here's the problem is you haven't been there, I have, and you can't understand it unless you listen to the one who has been there and who has come to tell you. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is claiming to have knowledge that comes from outside of this world and outside of our experience, and he's offering us that knowledge. Now, when somebody makes that kind of claim, you have to ask yourself whether or not you believe them. That's the whole purpose of John's gospel, by the way, is to convince us that he is worth believing and that by believing we will have life in him. So Jesus reveals heaven born again. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one uh, at that. and Let's move on to the next one for the sake of time. The next thing that Jesus says to this very religious man is that new birth comes from believing in Jesus himself. So he says you have to be born again and that you can't, you can't get to heaven by being religious. You need to be born again. So I said this earlier, we desperately need to know how we can be born again. Fortunately, Jesus answers that question. It comes from believing in him. This was hinted at already in John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 12, I'm actually, let me start in verse 10, because I want to get to verse 12. This is how John starts his gospel in his prologue. He says, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. He gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This is what it means to be born again, to believe in the one that God has sent, the one that God has sent with this message of salvation, the one who, whom God has sent to achieve the means of salvation through his life and through his, his um, death and his resurrection, to believe in him, 
is to be born again. To believe in Jesus is to be born again. Not to be born of the flesh. That's the first family you're born into. The family you need to be born into is the family of God where we become his children. And we do that by believing. This is how it happens in the conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. This is how it happens in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Hold on to that thought. We'll talk about that in a second. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who world to condemn will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, so John 3.16 obviously is a big verse. And one of the challenges when you're preaching a passage like this is that every, if, when I read that passage or we look at this passage, uh, everybody's attention and mind and thoughts automatically go to John 3.16. And rightfully so, it is the biggest, most important verse in the Bible. Like if you don't know anything else from the Bible, know John 3.16. It reveals God's plan of redemption in one verse. Not everything we need to know about that plan, obviously, but in its simplest form, that God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a big verse. But we want to understand that verse in its context, in the context of the conversation that was happening. You, you know what happens when things get pulled out of context, right? We see this happening daily in the media. Somebody says something that can be used against them, and it really doesn't matter what they meant when they said it. It really doesn't matter the context or the setting or, or anything else that was going on. If you said three words that can be used against you, you, you better believe those three words will be used against you. So we have to understand things in their context. Meaning is revealed by context. And so that's why we take such time to look at this entire passage. So we have this, we have this idea that new birth comes from believing in Jesus. I said I want to look at this whole idea of Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can turn to Numbers chapter 21. I want to try to do this quickly, so I'm going to go ahead and start reading Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is what's being referenced here, and, and it's a great idea if you have time. You don't always have time to do this, but anytime you're reading in the New Testament, if something in the Old Testament is referred to or referenced, or sometimes even just quoted, it's always a good idea to go back and read that story because there was a reason that John includes that in his gospel, and it helps us understand the meaning of the passage we're in. So here's the story. This is the, this is the Israelites, um, this is before the kingdom of David, and this is way back, almost at the beginning of the nation of Israel, the first few hundred years, okay? They're in the wilderness, this is before they take the promised land. Verse 4 says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. 
The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. This is a strange story. <laughs> it's wild, right? Like wild things happen in the Bible. Okay, don't ever think the Bible is boring. There are parts that, because, well, there are parts that are dry. But there are parts like this that are wild. Like people started complaining and God sent poisonous snakes to bite. That's kind of exciting stuff. <laughs> At least from our perspective of not being the one getting bitten. But there's some important truths in this story that relate very much, believe it or not, to what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. First of all, we see that the people have sinned against God. That is our position as well. We have sinned against God. Their sin was complaining. I'm guessing our sin at least exceeds that by a little bit. <laughs> um, we've sinned against God. They've sinned against God. They, be, they come under God's judgment for their sin. Because they're under God's judgment, they repent and turn from their sin, and God offers a solution for their sin and the judgment that he is carrying out, and that the solution is this very unique solution. The, the Old Testament, it's not all like this, okay? Like, this is, this is meant to stand out. You're meant to remember, what the heck was going on with Moses putting that bronze snake on a stick and then sticking it in the ground, people got sick and they looked at it and they were healed. You're like, that doesn't even sound like the Bible. That doesn't sound like Christian. You're supposed to remember it because a couple of thousand years later, Jesus is going to say, I'm like that. He's going to say to people who have sinned against God and who are facing the reality of his judgment, here's what you got to do to be saved. Remember when Moses put that snake on a stick and everybody that looked upon that snake, obviously in faith, I mean, you had to believe that that was true in order to go look at the snake. If you didn't believe it was true, you weren't going to do it. But if you believed it was true and you went and you looked on that snake, which has been lifted up for everybody to see, then you will be saved. Jesus says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. So a couple years later, after the story, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a stake of his own. And following that, everybody who looks upon him in faith is going to be forgiven of their sins and be saved from God's judgment. It's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus came to do. So new birth comes from believing in Jesus. Just as the Israelites had to believe that God would save them if they obeyed him and looked at that snake, so we are saved if we believe God and obey him in looking to Jesus. So what does it mean to be born again? Let me try to define this in terms of what we just learned here from Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. And, and they repented of their sin. They went to Moses and they said, we've messed up. We've sinned. We shouldn't have done this. 
And in the same way, you and I need to repent of our sins. To repent of your sins, you need to acknowledge that they exist, that you are guilty before God. So repent of your sins. Two, you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins because of God's love for you. That's John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You have to believe that. You can feel bad about your sin, but if you don't believe that God has made provision for your sin through Jesus Christ being lifted up and punished on your behalf, and that by believing in him, you can be born again and have life. If you don't believe that, you won't be born again. So you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins because, God, because of God's love for you. And then finally, you need to trust in the work of Jesus to save you, not in your own ability to save yourself. That's why I think it's so important. You know, John could have told us what Jesus said in John 3.16 without putting it into the context of the story of Nicodemus. He wanted us to understand that Jesus was telling this very religious man that all of your attempts to save yourself, all of your attempts to make yourself right before God and to make yourself acceptable, to make yourself ready for the kingdom of heaven, to make yourself God, all of your attempts to do that don't really mean anything at all. The only way to be born again, and you must be born again, the only way to be born again is to believe that what Jesus did, he did for you because of God's love for you, and that by trusting in him, not in yourself, you can be saved. That's what it means to be born again. But I've got one more point. Let me make it quickly. Anyone who rejects Jesus is not born again and will be judged for their sins. This is the part of the gospel that nobody likes to preach. Well, some people like to preach it. I don't know why. But for the most part, nobody likes to preach this part of the gospel. We love to tell people that you can enjoy telling people that if you don't do that, you won't be saved. But it's so important that you hear this. If you don't come to God on his terms, you remain under his judgment you remain separated from him by your sins. And that is a horrible reality to face. But it's true. It's as true as anything else in the Bible because God says it repeatedly. He does not allow us to read the Bible without hearing this message. This is, this is how it happens in John 3, verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned... But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. I actually need to go back to verse 17 to understand that well. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. This message of the gospel is a message of you're already condemned. Sometimes the world sees the gospel message as bringing condemnation on people. Believe in Jesus or you're going to die. Believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. What the gospel really is, is you're going to die and you're going to go to hell so, 
believe in Jesus and be saved. Do you understand the difference in seeing the world thinks that they're already okay? I was watching South Park the other day. <laughs> Marty said, Amen. You sinner. I wasn't trying to watch South Park. I was I turned on Comedy Central because there was a comedian that I wanted to see. And then South Park came on. I don't watch South Park. I haven't read episode was uh, very revealing of how the world thinks. It was an episode about this Jehovah's these Jehovah's Witnesses that were going door to door and how ridiculous their message is. That was the message of South Park, right? But their message, even though it was coming from Jehovah's Witnesses, was part of the gospel that we would agree with. And it's what I just said, that if you don't, if you don't turn from your sin to God, that you are already under judgment, and only by turning to him can you be saved. Part, we would agree with that. I would not agree with the Jehovah's Witnesses on many things, but I would agree with that part. But what that revealed was how the culture sees our world. And the message was clear. We're already okay. We don't need some sort of radical religious uh, adherence to come and to save us from our sins. Human beings are okay the way they are. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of Jesus. That is not the message of the gospel. You don't have to like it. I don't like it. I wish we were okay. But even though we're not okay, the good news is that God loves us so much that he, that he expressed his love in this way. He sent his son, his one and only son, to die in our place so that we could be saved. You must be born again. You must believe in Jesus. If you don't, you're already condemned. If you don't, you're already in your sins. You're like the Israelites in the wilderness, snake-bitten with no one to save you. But if you're willing, there's somebody who will save you, and you must look to him. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow for us sometimes that we're not okay in and of ourselves, that we're not okay without you that we need somebody else to do something for us that we can't do ourselves. Tough pill to swallow. We'd like to think we can fix this. We'd like to think we can get this done. We'd like to think that just give us another day, we'll make it right. Just give us, just give us some more time. We're going to be better. We're going to do better. And the gospel says no. You can't. So don't believe and Jesus knowing that we couldn't possibly save ourselves and unwilling unwilling to allow us to die in our sins without the offer of your mercy you came you laid down your life you died for my sins and for our sins there's this guy named Nicodemus who was doing his best 
to, to do things right and to be religious. And one day his own hands grabbed hold of your body that had been brutally mutilated for his sins. He saw, he saw, and he felt what his sin deserved. May we see and may we feel what our sin deserves. And may we see the love that you have for us, that you would take our sin upon yourself, even to the point of death. but so that our salvation would be sure you did not remain dead. You rose on the third day and you preached the gospel. You preached this message of being born again so that we could be born again. And you sent disciples and you sent your followers to tell the world. And they told anybody here. And here we are today with this opportunity to believe Jesus if there's anybody here today. Who came in here today not believing. God would you lead them to believe today. And to be born again. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.